I was watching Larry Fink talk about how great Bitcoin is on Fox News. And all I could think was, this guy seems really old and kind of vague. And I feel like once you start questioning the age and competency of the people in charge, you're falling into that populist, you know, you just hate established the establishment uh, camp. They go on TV, they decide to make the appearance, uh, how they come across, uh, that's... Uh... Well, that's for us to decide. I also was uh, not as impressed. I've seen Larry Fink in other interviews where he seemed a little more with it, but uh, he was on Fox Business this past week and everybody in the Bitcoin, you know, online spaces is talking about how he had pretty positive things to say about Bitcoin. You know, he called it digital gold, of course. Um, but he also said it's a hedge against inflation. He said it's a hedge against onerous problems of any one country. Uh, he called it an international currency that people might want to play in or invest. Um, it was, I mean, probably shocking how uh, positive it was. I mean, he essentially said the reason why BlackRock is getting into Bitcoin is because BlackRock's always been about hope. <laughs> that was really layering it on thick. <laughs> it's how, you know, nothing says hope like $9 trillion of assets. Larry is repeating Bitcoin monetary arguments that I think first became popular in maybe 2014. So it's only taken him nine years to get there. At the same time, I think it makes sense that large asset managers like BlackRock, they only get interested in assets when they become of an investable size. Previously, Bitcoin and the entire crypto market cap as a whole was so small that BlackRock couldn't actually make allocations in a useful way because their portfolio is so large. So for them to get any kind of position, they might you know, double or triple or quadruple the price of Bitcoin just through their buying. And that is great, right? Now it's worth a lot more, but you also can't sell it. And they need to constantly buy and sell assets to perform portfolio management. So this might be a sign that Bitcoin is now at a market cap, or there's a perception that the industry and the ecosystem has evolved to the point where during the next bull market, BlackRock will be able to take a position and more importantly, be able to sell that position without a huge amount of slippage. I have to wonder if there's two time events that have kind of led this all now to happen. One, I would imagine BlackRock's probably done their research here, and they're probably aware of the halving. They're probably aware of the supply reducing in 2024. And maybe they want to try to get this in now before that event because they think they can leverage that to raise the price. The other thing that, uh, and this part is just obviously speculation, but I don't think it's a ridiculous statement to say that BlackRock is a well-connected organization. Um, some of the BlackRock representatives have been to the White House like 40 times this year or something like that. Uh, they're well-connected and they may know that perhaps there's been a sea change. Perhaps they look at the recent SEC enforcements as the sheriff coming into town and cleaning up the riffraff gamblers. And so now they can come in and open their bank. Maybe they suspect something larger is about to happen. Now, this part is wild speculation on Bitcoin Twitter this morning, but some sleuths have realized that the reasons the previous Bitcoin ETFs were rejected besides the surveillance stuff is because the SEC was worried about market manipulation because the ETF wasn't working in conjunction with the with the largest market player. And so the concern was that Binance would begin. Uh, they didn't say Binance, but this is where the speculation begins. The concern was that Binance could manipulate the price of Bitcoin that would affect these ETFs. Then this morning, we see that the Binance chief strategy officer, Patrick Hillman, and the vice president for compliance over at Binance have left. And it seems there's other people that, have, that are just not as uh, well known have also departed Binance. The rats are fleeing Binance for some reason. 
maybe, maybe BlackRock knows something's about to happen with finance. If finance were to collapse for some reason, Coinbase would become sort of the de facto largest Bitcoin exchange and would solve the problem that was the cause of all the previous Bitcoin ETF rejections. That's an interesting thought experiment because Binance has been the largest international exchange and the fact that they are unregulated effectively and from the finance email leaks, it's pretty clear that they conduct themselves in a way that regulators do not like and would find non-compliant. By authorizing or further legitimizing involvement in Bitcoin and crypto trading in regulated markets, previously that really would have supported Binance's business model perhaps, because it would have essentially forced more participation on Binance of regulated entities, because Binance is the largest exchange. You're going to have to trade there, right? I imagine. I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert. But if the Justice Department and other legal cases and sanctions against Binance continue, then maybe by removing or or hurting or hobbling or reducing the largest unregulated cryptocurrency exchange, the SEC and other regulators may feel like they've tamed the market, like they can now allow more participation because they've gotten rid of or reduced all the bad actors in their view. Just a thought. Speculation. Even if it's not necessarily 100% true, you combine that with their recent enforcement actions and you combine that with these updated surveillance disclosures, it may be enough for the SEC to say, all right, now we can, uh, you know, we can give this the, the stamp of approval. Does it, does the idea that say this process, say it works itself out and early 2024, these ETFs start getting approved or something. I mean, who knows what the timeline is, but let's just for the continuing the thought experiment, this does work out. Does it give you FOMO? Because my first reaction is FOMO. Like, oh crap, I'm, I'm losing my window to stack is because yeah, I, I will probably continue to try to stack, but it's going to be, I would imagine very expensive if these ETFs get approved and it's likely if they do get approved, they all get approved at once. I've kind of given up trying to anticipate Bitcoin price. I FOMO'd so many times that maybe that reaction is now broken in me. <laughs> yeah, good. And I guess maybe I think for some Bitcoiners, there has to be a point where you've got your Bitcoin allocation. You've already allocated. And if you're going to allocate more, great. But you've already taken your position. And so you can kind of relax about, oh, I'm never going to be able to buy again because the price is going to go up 100x. You know, There's a certain point where you're like, well, I already have some Bitcoin. So if it goes up 100x, I'm pretty happy with that. I don't know if I'm there yet, but I just it, it's so hard to anticipate. Yeah, yeah. Are they going to get approved? I mean, we've been talking about ETF approvals for years. I remember dark nights in 2018 as the Bitcoin was sliding off of that 17k high and people were talking about the Van Eck ETF and how it was going to be such a game changer and you know nothing happened for years that could very well be the case they could be denied still i mean the SEC has made it very clear that if they want to make this process take 20 years they believe they have that right and they're going to have to litigate that i mean just because coinbase may win a lawsuit against the SEC just because ripple may win a lawsuit against the SEC it doesn't mean that the judge is going to hit their gavel and say okay every Everyone gets an ETF. You know, now the SEC has to approve the ETF. They might be in a bad mood afterwards and it might take them years. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think there is some signal regardless of what happens if the ETFs get approved or denied or if it takes a year. The signal is, is that all the big banks and the biggest bank, they want in and they want your bags. They want you to sell your Bitcoin to them. They want your Bitcoin and they just showed their cards. Right. Larry Fink went from Bitcoin is a scam. He went from saying bad stuff at every public event he could. 
where somebody brought it up to now Bitcoin is essentially hope and it's a way to hedge against one country going sideways and inflation and it's digital gold, by the way, by our ETF, which he can't say, but it's essentially his message. That's a huge, huge revealing of what their actual belief and position is on Bitcoin. And I think it's also a signal they're not announcing an Ethereum ETF. They didn't announce a Cordana ETF. They didn't announce a general crypto bag of ETF. It's a Bitcoin ETF. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on July 7th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely, as always, with... It's me, it's Chris. Welcome back, everybody. This was a light news week, so we're going to discuss a speech that the European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde gave in April that is actually incredibly revolutionary, and I finally got around to reading it, and I was shocked. In privacy, a Harvard think tank has written a piece discussing the formalization of misinformation studies and how a new misinformation industrial complex is driving research and public policy. Kind of interesting stuff, a little bit introspective. I thought we could take a peek at that. In Bitcoin education, we have a very light Bitcoin optech, and then we have some boosts and feedback, and that's our show. Looking forward to it. I always like getting lightning into more things. I uh, I try to live on the lightning network. I, uh, I don't really do very many on-chain transactions. <laughs> Someone once told me, well, if it's not a transaction on the layer one, it's not a Bitcoin transaction. And I, I just didn't know what to say to that. Oh, it will be. One day. One day it'll be a Bitcoin one transaction. Day, yeah. So you said, I want to talk about this speech. And I thought, oh boy, a banker speech. That sounds really compelling. And then you teased a little bit before the show to me what, what she covers in there, Christine Lagarde. I'm going to try, I'm going to try to avoid going on a rant, but I think we should get into this because uh, it really kind of shows us, I think, where the financial leadership's head's at and where they want to take things. This speech happened back in April and at the Council on Foreign Relations, an American think tank. And as this think tank is in New York, kind of down the street from the Federal Reserve, Christine Lagarde certainly consulted with Jerome Powell and the U.S. Federal Reserve on the contents of this speech. So I think that the fact that it occurred is a kind of tacit acknowledgement that the Federal Reserve doesn't really have a problem with any of the proposals outlined in this speech. So what are the proposals? Well, not to be too dramatic, but this speech, in my view, heralds the end of central bank independence. Central bank independence is this idea that has been quite prevalent. I mean, certainly since the uh, Volcker uh, Federal Reserve in the uh, beginning of the 1980s in the U.S. And the view is that the central bank needs to have some independence from the federal government so that the central bank doesn't end up supporting unreasonable fiscal spending that creates inflation. That's sort of the TLDR. But what Lagarde is observing is that the hegemonic dollar international currency world is fracturing, and it's not necessarily going to be a bipolar world where there's a U.S. block and a China-Russia block. First of all, because China is so massive in terms of a market and a producer that it's impossible to lock out from global trade. I mean, the U.S. is going to have to do trade with China. And Russia is actually the same, but in terms of energy, because I've seen analysis of these policies that were sort of going to not buy Russian gas. Well, a lot of Russian gas and oil has been being shipped to Saudi Arabia, which is an oil exporter. So what's happening? They're just re-exporting it. So you can't actually keep these materials out of the global economy and supply chains. There's just so much demand that it's like water. You know, you can't stop water from rolling downhill. It's just going to, it's going to get in there. 
you know, trying to have political policies that are not economically feasible, they just don't work. That's, you know, sort of maybe obvious. So what this means is Christine Lagarde thinks that we're moving towards a multipolar world, a world where there's more sort of regional blocks, more sort of regional local trading and uh, policy spaces. And in this world, inflation is likely to be systemically higher because we can no longer count on getting shipping containers from China in six weeks in a, you know, in this new world. Sometimes it's six weeks, sometimes it's six months. You can't build an economy when you have unreliable supply chains like that. And it's also clear that all of the major political powers are happy to use their economic entanglements with other countries as weapons. So in the case of the US, the US will confiscate your dollar financial assets if you misbehave. And in terms of China, if you're a country like Germany that has massive corporate entanglement with China, China will fine your German companies in China if your government does something they don't like, or they'll arrest foreign executives, or they'll nationalize those properties. So everyone's weaponizing the economy. Everyone's weaponizing the monetary system. And Lagarde thinks that this means that central banks and central governments need to join hands and basically have coordinated economic policy that picks winners and losers, picks favored industries, picks strategically important industries, and gives them preferential access to funding. And everyone else maybe gets no funding or maybe gets funding at higher rates. Yeah, she says here uh, that she wants to have a greater cohesion of central bank and federal policy and sustainable growth policy, which to me is an umbrella term, right? A month ago, I was watching your buddy uh, Jay Powell at a Senate hearing, and a series of questions kept coming up over and over again, predominantly from the right, but a few from the left. And there were questions about what seemed like energy policy and recommendations that the Federal Reserve had released as papers. And they kept asking, like, why is the Federal Reserve getting involved in energy policy? And Jay Powell dismissed it each time. You know, we're focused on our two primary mandates. We're not focused on energy policy. But then, you know, somebody else would bring up, well, okay, you guys have released this. And on, you know, February of 2003, why did you, of 2023, why did you say this? And there was this real avoidance by him to not really, he wasn't acknowledging the fact that they were releasing these this research and these papers and these policy recommendations, even though they had the papers and policy recommendations right there, he just wouldn't acknowledge, he wouldn't acknowledge the topic and just refused to really answer. And when you say that Christine probably had tacit approval from the Federal Reserve. I, I just think back to that and I think, yeah, there does seem like there is something bigger. It's a more comprehensive market management strategy. And haven't we really been seeing that since COVID and really since 2008, but really since COVID where the banks, the central banks around the world have been lowering and raising rates sort of in unison. They kind of decide when together and they all kind of lowered the rates after 2008. And then in, and in COVID, they all up all of the central banks in the West up the money printing considerably. And then they all kind of in uniform started raising and tightening. And it seems like they've been sort of operating together more and more, especially over the last, say, three or four years. I think that observation is generally true, but I wouldn't say that it's necessarily central banks intentionally coordinating. I mean, I think that gives a sense that maybe there's this extranational cabal of central bankers. Rather, I think everyone's just following the United States because as the United States changes monetary policy, you have to change your local monetary policy. So there's not an interest rate divergence, which causes capital to flow out of your country into the United States. And so perhaps this is just officializing this process, you know, or just in the bankers means, you know, they're sort of just making this 
process that seems to be naturally aligned? I think it's two issues. I think on the one hand, you have the fact that the international monetary system is essentially dollar-based. In this speech, Lagarde talks about how 20% of foreign exchange reserves are are euro-based, and so she kind of counts the euro as a reserve currency. But I think that that number is a little misleading because I think that those euro reserves are generally held by European governments with the European Central Bank. And so they're not really like the free market didn't choose to use euro reserves. The euro area kind of mandated that to happen. Well, that's their whole thing is the management process, right? Like she says in here, in order for the world to address supply chain constraints and in order for investment to be promoted in the market, this management needs to occur. And the implication there is, is without this management, supply chain cannot be resolved and the market will not invest in the right areas and they will not achieve sustainable growth. Yeah, it's very normative. So what I'm getting at is that, you know, I think Powell didn't want to answer those congressional questions because he might have been thinking, guys, don't say the quiet part out loud. The reason the central bank has been taking such a central role in economic policy is because of political dysfunction. The U.S. has not had a government that could have grown up conversations about economic transformation and investment in infrastructure and sort of building future prosperity. And as a result, the only entity that had sort of any impact on the economy was the Federal Reserve, who attempted to manage markets via interest rates and caused, you know, a huge asset bubble in the process. I think that this speech from Lagarde is very aspirational because the assumption is that the fiscal side of government, Congress and the US or the parliaments of Europe, will be functional enough to join hands with the central bank to create comprehensive economic policy. And I guess I question that assumption because I think that, at least in the US, government is very dysfunctional and there seems to be a lot of sort of political performance, a lot of politicians who seem to be there to make outrageous statements that are not very realistic and won't really lead to policy. So I don't know how a government like that, full of politicians who aren't really serious about enacting policy and don't necessarily have strong views about the world and seem to be there to kind of raise their, you know, Twitter fame and, you know, pick up a paycheck or something. I don't see how those people are going to take the opportunity of a central bank that's ready to, you know, collude essentially with the government and say, okay, we need to onshore our semiconductor supply chain. So let's have a policy that gives companies that build semiconductor related stuff unlimited financing at 2% interest rate. And yeah, I know that's a negative rate because inflation's at five, that's fine. We'll give them 2%, but we think the housing sector is a little um, overheated. So let's cap mortgage rates and or, or set a floor on mortgage rates so they can't go under 6% or something, you know, something like that. We're talking about a managed economy, but to do that management, you have to have a government that is together enough to create the policy. And I guess I question the existence of that level of competence and stability in the U.S. It just seems to me like they're filling essentially a power vacuum, and this would just be expanding more into that vacuum. And it starts with cooperation, and it leads to control. Uh, there's another line in here, and it to me it really underscores how this is a real philosophy difference, right? This is a this is a different way to run an economy, and it's one that is being proposed by people that haven't been elected into office. But it says that they want to maintain an economic policy mix that produces a less volatile growth 
And they believe that keeping inflation in check with less volatile growth will make things more attractive for international investment. But the thing, the line in there that really gets me is a policy mix that produces less volatile growth. The only way you get there is by the bankers or the government, as you're saying, picking the winners and losers and having more nuanced control over how they pick those winners and losers, either through financial tools or regulatory tools, whatever it might be. What they're really proposing here is sort of a worldwide economic policy that produces less volatile growth. That sounds crazy to me. It sounds anti-human to me. Well, I mean, she also talks about how the ECB is building a digital euro and how the People's Bank of China is also using foreign exchange swap lines to sort of incentivize the use of renminbi as an international settlement currency. So there's a lot there. And I've been predicting a new era of financial repression, and I believe this is a flag on the journey towards obvious financial repression throughout the world, but in the U.S. and the Europe as well, the Europe, in the U.S. and Europe as well. And what I mean is, as government debt builds up, as corporate debt builds up, if you have short-term financial panics that lead to illiquidity, important companies and institutions can find themselves insolvent overnight. And to prevent that from happening, you need to reduce the ability of markets to explore those events. You just need more market control. You need less international movement of capital. So investors can't pull their money out of an economy as they panic and destabilize currencies. And so I think that the sort of financial control, policy control that Lagarde is describing is part of a new financially repressed model that naturally comes at a point of incredibly high debt ratios that have no way to resolve without instability or volatility, as she calls it. Well, I'm glad I have something to opt out of that system with. Let me tell you what, like, I'll tell you what, that, uh, that sounds like a disaster because so far these people haven't demonstrated the ability to manage properly. And I think when I first heard about that, what got me fired up is it's not like I want us to go on the show and say, well, free markets and only free markets are the right answer because the Western economy is a house cat. And if you were to, it's been declawed too. And if you were to release it out of the wild, it would die. It wouldn't be able to feed itself. It'd be hunted. You can't just go all free economy. But at the same time, the people that have been centrally managing things for a while now have been consistently making them worse for the people of the planet. And their supposed stated goals about sustainability and all of that have never materialized. And yet their solution seems to be instead of reflection on what hasn't worked and perhaps dialing things back a bit and letting things breathe, their solution is let's double down and do more of what hasn't been working. Of course, they don't see it that way because the problem has always been that they just don't manage things enough and that they, the people don't don't uh, understand the complexities. But I think what truly frustrates me is there's never a point where we go, well, this hasn't worked. Let's have a discussion about uh, what might be a better model to proceed. Instead, what we get is more of the same, but they double down on this gaslighting terminology about environmentalism, sustainability, growth, uh, low inflation. It feels like we're just trapped by the will of these people that needed to step aside about 30 years ago. Oh, now you brought up age. Now you're a populist too, Chris. No, not necessarily to age. I think it's the entire milieu. It's the, so even because you have even young folks who come up in this, in this milieu and they think this way, they get this group think. And I think it's this entire philosophy of how to manage world economies as it, we're watching the results of it right now. As we go and we spend more for everything that we've, we, we have to buy just to survive. 
And as we watch the developed nations continue to be oppressed after 50 years, as we watch all of this stuff not get achieved that they've been fighting for for forever, for my whole life, uh, we just have some point, don't we go, okay, well, this isn't quite working out. And it's not so much age, although a lot of them have been in there in a very long time and they clearly are bag holders that have incentives. But I think it's the whole milieu. It's the whole group thing needs to reflect a little bit. Instead, what we're getting is an opportunity for them to have more power because of the vacuum left by dysfunctional governments. For some reason, when you were talking my mind went to Paul Ryan. Do you remember him? He was a Republican yeah. Congressman. Speaker of the House. Yeah. And also a presidential candidate for a hot minute. And he retired during the first Trump presidency. Why did I say first? Now there's going to be a second one. Mm. Sorry. <laughs> but he like early in the Trump presidency, he resigned. Yeah. Right. And I think that was an important moment because Paul Ryan was your traditional, you might even say moderate conservative, small government candidate. I think by today's standards, he was definitely a moderate conservative. But I think at the mo you know, back then, wasn't he kind of all in on the Iraq stuff and Afghanistan stuff? And wasn't he kind of like a big cheerleader for Bush? He was a bit hawkish, but that's what it took back then. The war hawks back then were considered far right. Now the war hawks are Democrats. Right. And then that's wild to think about that transformation. In many ways, Obama was a less hawkish Democratic option. One of the issues with Hillary Clinton was that she was so gung-ho on American military power. And I think that was, maybe that's been forgotten now, but that was also an issue with her, her candidacy. So when Paul Ryan retired from Congress, I think that was a moment when we saw that the traditional sort of conservative political platform wasn't working. And he didn't seem to be willing to go into the post-truth, say anything, get on social media, you know, talk about space lasers, all that stuff. He didn't want to go there. And so he retired. And that was an interesting moment. I guess I bring it up because my sense is that uh, these sort of political cycles have to kind of work themselves out. And I don't think we've gotten extreme enough. You know, I don't think we've seen the end of the uh, political cycle. I read a book years and years ago that talks about some of this political cycles and it's sort of we've sort of we're sort of um we're about uh, four years overdue. Um, I think the political process is also much like the economy overmanaged now. And so a natural cycle that could have worked itself out a little quicker is being delayed. And I think that's really frustrating because it just makes our government completely dysfunctional. And it's it is going to get worse before it gets better, because when things get to the state, it, it generally leads to like a radical candidate being elected. However, the system doesn't really seem to be allowing those radical candidates in to, uh, you know, to have their chance uh, to really break things, which seems to be part of the process, at least historically. And, you know, while all of this is going on, there's a power vacuum, right? There's an absolute power vacuum. And there's going to be those that are in very powerful positions that can leverage that. And it's it's frustrating because I don't see it getting better anytime soon. And there are a lot of signs that there's sort of uh, political cracks and social cracks that are being papered over. And one of those signs is the explosion in popularity of this term misinformation, disinformation. And we've talked about it a bit. And I think that you've kind of helped me examine my own views on this subject, because I think before we spoke so much, I might have agreed that, gosh, it seems like disinformation spreads really fast on the internet. It would be great if we could do something about that. And now I, I see that uh, disinformation, misinformation, it's a highly subjective term. And the majority of the things that people believe are probably wrong. So trying to uh, police what people say online is this uh, very, very uh, slippery slope. But the study of so-called misinformation is becoming formalized. This is now becoming an academic discipline. It's working its way into 
policy. And it's really a brush you don't want to be painted with. And I think this is relevant for the Bitcoin conversation because Bitcoin is clearly uh, still a fringe movement. Uh, The sort of values of the Bitcoin community, I think, are contrary to establishment values in many cases. And so I think that things like misinformation, disinformation, etc., you know, you kind of have to keep your eye on this and think, gosh, uh, when, when are they coming for me? So I was looking at this study, uh, which we'll have linked from Harvard. It's very meta. Did you notice this? Like it, it really discusses the, you know, the outsized impacts of misinformation, as they would put it. It looks at it from a policy standpoint. It looks at it from a very high level meta standpoint. And then it has a whole litany of articles and other media reporting that it cites. I've just been spending the time going through some of these and summarizing them with chat GPT as we were talking. And um, they all themselves are talking about toxic disinformation and the troubles that disinformation brings. And I know I haven't been able to go through every, them, every single one of them with my own eyeballs, but uh, this study, this main study from Harvard and the articles that are linked don't really cite an example of damage done by genuine disinformation. And a lot of the times the articles they are citing when they're talking about disinformation, the things that they call disinformation at the time turned out to be not disinformation. We categorized it as disinformation at the time. The article was written during that time when we believed it was disinformation. And the article goes on about how damaging the disinformation is. But then the very thing that it, they were writing about, you know, six months later turned out to be not disinformation. Of course, you're, it's all vague and how do you define it? But it's, it's very self-referential and meta in this way. It's sort of a self-supporting structure, circular, a circular structure. I thought this was an interesting article because it's from the Misinformation Review, but it's a meta critique of their publication and misinformation studies. And generally it's saying, if you could just summarize it into a sentence, the field is kind of BS. It's a way of academizing moral panic. And essentially there are views perspectives that you don't like and you can't accept them. So it's misinformation. And now we can begin to to examine it in a clinical way. And uh, there are, but there are a lot of assumptions because, you know, one, it's very hard to prove harm. It's just worth a look to think about how this field is evolving. And I think that it's not surprising that we are at a moment where the economic incentives of different groups in society are just diverging radically. I mean, we're in an economic model that just doesn't work for a lot of people. And as such, you know, maybe that's part of the driver of the political disharmony where, you know, people are like, listen, uh, I can't survive a lockdown. I don't work from home. I don't work on the computer. I have to go to a place to work. I can't have a lockdown. And other people are like, you're killing my grandmother. I mean, I see the conflict there. There's no way to resolve it in my view. I think where I get frustrated is there's a lot of ways you could you could lens this. And one is the have and have nots, the privileged and the unprivileged, right? It's a, it's a position of privilege to be able to work from home at a comfy corporate job and then to be able to say, yeah, I want more lockdowns. And then, of course, you still want your food delivered. You still want your Amazon packages delivered. You still want gas running at the gas pump. It's a position of privilege. And so that's what makes me angry. And I think a lot of times when people fail to realize the significance of Bitcoin, it's because they've been pretty well taken care of by the existing established system. And so another lens in which I sometimes look at this is establishment versus anti-establishment. And when I hear people shilling for the existing system, I can't help but think, you know, you're simping for an establishment that doesn't care about you, that couldn't care less about you and will squish you if it enables even just the minor, minor goal, a minor, minor goal. They'll, they'll, they'll flip an economic policy or a trade policy. They'll go wild on some energy policy that will generationally screw you and they won't think about it in a second. And I can't stand the people that defend that. But then that's not how they see it. They, they don't view it that way. They just view it as, you know, 
life as it's always been. And so it's can't get too cynical, but that dichotomy you're talking about, or, or, or another way to call it is populism, right? Like there is some anger, I feel, because I've mentioned it on the show before, but there's nobody, nobody in this presidential cycle, nobody running for any office that's talking about the millions of small business owners out there that can't afford health insurance because they're not part of a large organization that basically gets sweetheart deals through Obamacare. And that's not an issue for anybody. And you're plugged into that. Right. Nobody's talking about that. Right. But it's a significant issue that impacts like the economic viability of a huge tier of our economy. And yet it's not an issue anybody cares about. It's not a, it's not a problem. And it's so therefore it's not going to get fixed because it's not going to get fixed until it's a crisis. This is the dysfunction that we now live in. And I find it really frustrating because there's a lot of people who don't have that problem. And so they don't give a crap. They don't care that millions of us don't have health insurance because they have health insurance. And as long as they got a job, they don't care. That's a good point because, I mean, I feel like you and Michael talk about this on Coder Radio, or it just comes up because it's just your the, the reality you're dealing with as small businesses in the technology space. And he keeps having heart attacks. Oh, geez. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine the stress he's under. Right. And and the, you know, and what's your crime? Why are you having such a hard time? Your crime is that you're not Google. You're not working for a big tech giant. You know, you love tech. You're interested in this whole thing, but you didn't decide to sell your soul and freedom to a massive organization like Google. And you're punished for it by not having access to, you know, healthcare and, and things that, you know, corporate wage slaves like myself take for granted. Yeah. And I think society is set up where when everybody plays to their incentives, those that just have stuff have, they don't really think about the people that don't have it. And, um, I think you see it reflected in economic. I think you see it reflected in social policy. Um, and it is, it's, it's a frustrating sort of position to be in because you can get really cynical that, you know, it's a people all privileged just don't see the benefit of Bitcoin because they've been so well privileged, right? When you were talking about working from home during the pandemic, that, that really hit close to home for me because I got my first remote job during the pandemic. And I think that's why I was able to make it through without losing my marbles. You know, it was a very stressful, difficult time. But if I had also been unable to work on top of that, I don't know if I would have survived it so well mentally. You know, I think I think a lot of people did get like very changed after that pandemic. They went through some serious stuff and they seemed very different afterwards, like more extreme. What was information and disinformation was changing even from the federal government. I remember I was I still had a jobby job. I hadn't gone independent quite at the very beginning of COVID. I went independent during COVID, which was crazy. They didn't want me commuting to the studio to do the shows. They wanted me to do all of the podcasts from my RV with you know my family in there, which was also on lockdown and home from school and whatnot. And there's nobody else but me at the studio at this time. And I argued with them that you know I'm getting in my car, I'm driving to the studio, I park in a garage at the studio, and I go directly inside the studio. I will not see another soul the entire day. No, 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 we just can't have you doing that. You have to do it from home. That's crazy. Very early on, it felt like arbitrary policies being implemented. And I didn't, I didn't do it. I just said, that's stupid. I know I'm not going to be at risk. I'm not following that. And I got in my car every single day and I drove to the studio. That period of time really felt like we were constantly getting different things thrown at us. And so, yeah, now when I, when I, I feel like we need to retire the term misinformation, it feels like news speak to begin with disinformation. It sounds like news speak. So let's just get rid of all the 1984 vernacular and let's just call it what it is. It's either bogus or it's legit news and we'll figure it out. I just I feel like the term is, itself has become charged. That was a great conversation. I, I really enjoyed that. Doesn't feel like we're covering much Bitcoin this week, but maybe we can make it up in the op. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like maybe Bitcoiners can, you know, I think what we touched on there is why it's so 
so hard for some people to adopt Bitcoin. Um, you know, like my podcasting buddies around me, they couldn't make the leap. You know, this, the existing advertising based monetary system, it served them so well. I, I tried for a year to get them to adopt boosts. They didn't do it because they couldn't, they couldn't grasp why they would need something like Bitcoin. Right. Then inflation took off and now their companies are struggling and they're switching to dynamic ads and they're, they're create they, you know, like Leo Laporte over at Twit, he's, he created something special from the ground up that is handcrafted with a small team of people. And now at the end of the day, they're taking that product and they're handing it over to, to some other company to cut it up and in, inject ads. Who even knows? It's going to be like radio. Who even knows what the ads are going to be? And that is a massive loss of sovereignty and ownership. And it is a trend towards turning podcasts into radio. And, you know, they just couldn't make the transition. They couldn't make the transition to Bitcoin because everything was going so well. They didn't see a need. And now here we are one year later and they're making these desperate moves. I mean, and it's not going to work because those dynamic ads are not paying the same rates that negotiated ad deals do. So you're going to have to start cutting costs somewhere. Or add more ads and you're going to have multiple ads back to back during the ad segment. Or try to add more episodes and burn yourself out. So it's just not a sustainable model. I know. I know. But you see, it's it's like even even as the water was getting turned up on them, they just the system had worked so well for them for so long. They didn't get it until it was too late. Check it all off and head over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Lots of great stuff popping over there. We did a deep dive into the Red Hat source code changes situation and really got into the nuances and got some insights from a Red Hatter who is on the ground. So if you haven't checked that out, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com and get up to date on that. Plus, check out self-hosted episode 100 recently released, as well as a brand new office hours where we're trying a brand new value for value podcasting model. All of it just recently posted at jupiterbroadcasting.com. This week's Bitcoin Optech does not have much discussion from the Bitcoin mailing list. There is another article about mempool relay from Gloria Zhao. We've talked a lot about those recently, so I'm just going to leave it in the show notes. And uh, this will be a short week and we can continue on to feedback. Yeah, hopefully it means uh, the mailing list was low key because developers were out enjoying the summer. And not engaging in flame wars. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Not Definitely not that, hopefully. Remember, you can get in touch BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. I got some emails this week that there were some issues receiving payments to my node and my node server uh, was showing an error this morning. So I will investigate. I am suspecting there's probably some form of hardware error, maybe a, uh, a dead uh, a dead Z pool or something that I'll have to resolve. Dun, dun. Does dad finally give in and go with Albie as his node? Stay tuned and find out. (laughs) Never. Um, Yeah, I know. I'm worried about my node just because, um, you know, my office is getting to like 90 degrees in the evening right now. And that it's an old box, old couple of Xeons in there that run hot. So um, we'll see. Hopefully it survives. I've seen a video of someone cooking bacon on a Xeon processor. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Mm, That makes me hungry. We did get some boosts, though. Um, And if I missed your boost, I apologize, because not only did dad have some node issues, but then we decided to transition me to a different wallet. So some boosts are going to the old node address and some boosts are going to the new node address. But I think I got everybody. Adveri17 comes in again with 20,000 sats for episode 86. My name is not Alex, nor am I living in the Netherlands. I'm a hospital IT sysadmin, awesome, who has uh, an addiction to computers, managing Windows and, uh, aka Windblows, at, at work and Linux at home. It's much less stressful. Uh, we should definitely talk about Ansible Terraform on Matrix. I'm still writing the playbook and roles, but would love to chat. 
and he put his uh, user ID in there. That's awesome that you manage IT at a hospital. That's got to be an interesting job. He goes on, he came in with one more boost for episode 87. He said it was a great episode. Paul is a great guy to have on the show, and it worked out nicely. I do like these interviews. Keep them coming. Well, thanks so much. Uh, a DeVries 17, who is not Alex DeVries Digiconomist. That was, uh, that was fun. I always think when I'm in a hospital, like I look around at the infrastructure and I always see yes. those um, Cisco access points that you, they also deploy in stadiums that are, I think the ones I've seen are 2.4G, but they, you know, that you, you can connect uh, thousands of mobile devices to like a single one of those access points. And they are centrally managed with a controller. So you can push out configs to 50 or 100 of them, you know, all at once. Pretty great hardware. I tried running them in a home environment years ago, but the lack of uh, a Cisco license for it kind of hindered me there. And oh, I ended yes. up, yeah, I ended up yeah. switching to a <laughs> uh, ubiquity um, access point that you know I could hack on a little easier. Mm-hmm. Macintosh boosts in twenty one hundred sats. I'll keep this to one point. When you start talking about ICOs and such, it gives me a headache. Even if you make the argument that this is all separate from the main coin, sounds like it is, the average person will still associate every one of these side chains with Bitcoin for the foreseeable future. Many failures will result from this and failures will color people's perceptions of BTC. We have the rest of human history to work this out. No need to rush. McIntosh at Generation Bitcoin. Well, thank you so much for the comment. I guess this is about Paul Storks's drive chain concept. Drive chains do not create ICOs. The drive chain token is Bitcoin. So you could theoretically issue additional tokens on the drive chain, like with the liquid sidechain. Liquid Bitcoin are Bitcoin, but you can spend them to create liquid assets, such as uh, Tether, stablecoin assets, and things like that. So I don't quite see this as an ICO, because an ICO is really like you start a new chain, and you create tokens out of nothing, and then you give them to yourself. I think this is very different, because the basis is Bitcoin. And if you're creating an additional asset, it's not represented on the main Bitcoin blockchain. You can always withdraw your Bitcoin from the sidechain. I think it's different. So that's my point of view, but thank you for participating in the conversation. Yeah. How was right came in with two boosts, uh, one for 2100 sats. There's been other projects out there which have had anonymous founders like Bitcoin with Satoshi. Namecoin comes to mind. Namecoin was developed by someone named Vinced, I think. And then shortly afterwards, he was never heard from again. Vinced also never, never mind anything that I'm aware of. I think Monero might also have some anonymous founders. And Monero was originally a fork of Bitcoin. Continuing with another boost, uh, Nixt also had anonymous founders, but NXT was one of the first pure proof of stake coins, and likely the founders had many of them from the start. Yeah, when they're anonymous, I, I wonder, like with Monero, we don't really know, but I didn't know that about Namecoin, Hal, so thank you. Yeah, the Monero origin story is really dramatic and weird. It actually started as a scam. There was a team that created the first, I, I think it was like crypto note implementation of Monero, and they pre-mined a bunch of it and they tried to trick everyone to hide the fact that they had mined, but it was ended up being pretty obvious. So if you want to hear Seth for Privacy's recount of that history, you should check out one of our first episode interviews with Seth for Privacy, where he talks about that. I don't think that an anonymous founder is a mark of project quality. It can also be a red flag. For instance, um, there was the Wonderland uh, Ethereum. I think it was Ethereum project. It was a DeFi Ponzi scheme. But one of the anonymous or pseudonymous founders turned out to be an associate of the Quadriga scammer. 
And so this was someone who had done multiple Ponzi schemes and other financial crimes, and then they'd become an anonymous personality to promote a decentralized Ponzi scheme called Wonderland. So anonymous founders, you know, all it means is the founder is not known. And so that could be good in the case of Satoshi, because we don't want Satoshi's personal characteristics to color the whole Bitcoin project. And, you know, at a certain point, the project gets so big that it really doesn't matter who Satoshi is. It doesn't matter what Satoshi's views were. It doesn't matter the, uh, you know, the details of Satoshi's life. And in fact, that would hurt Bitcoin, because no matter what those details are, if Satoshi's a saint, all the sinners would hate Bitcoin. If Satoshi's a sinner, all the saints would hate Bitcoin. You know, you see, you can't please everyone. So just remove yourself from the conversation. A Hanaga boosts in 20,000 sats. Thank you very much. Good conversation as always. I've noticed some boosts fail from Fountain, so hope this one gets through. It looks like it did, and uh, we will work on those node issues. Thank you so much. Thank you for trying again. Uh, Mere Mortals podcast comes in with a row of ducks. Is there any reason custodial lightning isn't just lightning? I think Paul's going to struggle to get people to use his stuff with a communication style like that. Lots of criticism and big hypothetical claims are getting thrown around. Ethereum wouldn't be around if people hadn't just listened to him. Yeah, that's good. I mean, uh, so let's take this bit by bit. So is custodial lightning not lightning? It is. I think the implication in Paul's statement is lightning servers controlled by a third party are not like the end goal we're going for here, right? That wouldn't be, he wouldn't consider that a great end result. Um, I think maybe Mere Mortals, why that's uh, striking you is because it's just not very practical, is it? With all the constraints and the speed that we want e-commerce when we're at a terminal, like it's, it's, it's going to be hosted, right? If NCR were to roll out payments using lightning to their terminals, of course, it's going to be a hosted solution, right? If NCR had an app where you could pay with, you could load stats and pay, of course, it's going to be a hosted lightning solution. Right. I think that Paul's point is that when you're using wallet of Satoshi or another custodial lightning wallet, they're using lightning and they're giving you an account. So you, it feels like you're using lightning. But in terms of the actual implementation, who actually controls the coins, it's the person who runs the lightning server. And so I think the point he's making is that if everyone had to run their own lightning node, they would be more aware of the constraints of lightning. And I think that's a fair point. I also think that your critique of Paul's communication style is frankly something I've heard before. You know, I think Paul has been thinking about Bitcoin for a very long time. You know, I, I really enjoy talking with him. At the same time, he does have a kind of um, academic, exhaustive style that, you know, some people can find pedantic. So he's definitely uh, a very singular communicator. So if that doesn't work for you, I, you know, I completely understand. It's uh, sometimes uh, people respond to uh, different styles of communication and uh, yeah, not trying to badmouth Paul on here, but he does uh, go on. <laughs> not that we, we never go on. No, we never do it. Un unlike us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cranky Danny boosts in 30,000 sats. Just a sim since my last boost didn't work. At least the portion that was supposed to go to dad. Hopefully this time it will work. Thank you very much for trying again, Cranky Danny. I just, I don't see why people call you cranky. You seem very uh, easygoing to me. And Cranky Danny got that technological analysis of Caspa. I love the podcast, despite your agenda to push for Bitcoin, no matter what. You can tell the religious bias and maxi approach from both of you, which <laughs> bluntly filters most of the criticism out. But at the same time, I kind of love it since I've, I hate the plenty of scams out here. Well, this is great. I'm <laughs> so, so glad that we have a listener who's not a Bitcoin maximalist and can uh, appreciate us with, uh, even, even though we, uh, we're, I guess we're, we're more religious on Bitcoin than Cranky Danny. 
I suppose. You know what? Uh, born from the fire, Cranky. We're born from the fire. Cranky sends in another 10,000 sats. I mistakenly boosted the last episode with the Paul interview rather than this show. He's that Caspa curious guy. Well, yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Danny. We appreciate it. True Grits comes in. True Grits is such a great booster. Sometimes True Grits just boosts in with just some sats. And this time he came with 5,000 sats just to say thanks for the episode. Well, thank you, True Grits. Cass Peelin boosted in 4,059 sats over two boosts. Thank you so much, Cass. And one of his messages was nice history. Thanks. And I guess that was the Paul Storks episode. Thanks for listening to that. Uh, and uh, one more boost that made the 1,000 sat cutoff uh, from Arabic. Arabic? Acerbic? Acerbic. (laughs) Acerbic, all right. I like, or or I like uh, Acebird. Acebird boosted in with a thousand sats. Uh, You need to talk to the Flirting with Bitcoin podcast, folks. They are, quote, sponsoring Sparrow Walt through a split. Love the show, guys. Keep it up. Now, I want to know how, did Sparrow Walt get a lightning node? I want to know what's happening here. That's great, though. That's a great idea. We just need to talk to uh, Craig Raw and get his lightning URL. Mm -hmm. There we go. Thank you, everybody who boosted into the pod. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to boost in, you've got a couple of options. It's a great way to support the show and keep it value for value. And uh, I'd say the easy way would be to get Albie. Just get Albie, get Albie.com, top it off either with like a cash app or directly, or I don't know, go get some RoboSats and toss them on. It's on the Lightning Network. And then you head over to the podcast index, find Bitcoin Dad Pod over there, and you can just boost in right from their webpage. But if you're ready to embrace the revolution of podcasting 2.0, you can go to newpodcastapps.com, pick up something like Fountain or Podverse or Castomatic, try out the new features of podcasting 2.0. Seem to, you know, there's other shows out there on the Lightning Network also using some other 2.0 features and enjoy it. And then you can boost right in with that app newpodcastapp.com for those this has been the bitcoin dad pod recorded on july 7th 2023 i've been your bitcoin dad and i'm here remotely as always with me chris thanks for joining us everybody see you next time